Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Lowell Rickliffs, the founder and managing partner at Traction Advisors. Today, we'll be covering three main topics with Lowell. First, how to determine if you are ready to sell your B2B SaaS business. Second, what are the key metrics that strategic acquisition partners will evaluate during due diligence? And what are the common metrics issues identified during that due diligence process? Lowell, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Major Up podcast. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Big fan of your show. You touched on a lot of relevant topics. I was an electrical engineer, computer science graduate. I went up the technical sales route at a Fortune 500 company, Rockwell Automation, ended as a global vice president and managed the software business for three years in the Americas, went to my first startup as a chief revenue officer. We scaled up from one to 50 million. It was sold to WPP for hundred million. Then I was a COO at another tech company. We scaled it from 10 million to 120. It was sold to private equity. Then I co-founded a tech stars company, which was eventually sold to a strategic. But part of what's most interesting in there, along the way, I was a part of acquiring about a dozen companies and became very familiar with the M&A process and the bankers that executed that. And when it came time to sell the company that I had co-founded, I was always curious why bankers sold companies. You don't go to a bank to sell your house. Why would you do that for your company? And, and, and I felt that selling small technology companies was more like selling a technology product than it was a financial instrument. And I get it that banks used a lot of financial analysis. You had inventory, you had heavy assets, but with SaaS companies, that's not true. It's more about strategic fit. So I ran the process myself, leveraged enterprise selling techniques and technologies. We were successful. One of our investors asked me for help on another project. And I realized there was an opportunity out there to help small, meaning you know, three to 20 million in ARR companies get, I felt better representation to properly position and sell their company to get the best deal for them. Well, it's great talking to someone who has so much experience, both on the buy side and on the sell side, because that gives you two very different perspectives. And as you were talking about some of those numbers, Lowell, I was thinking about to, I've been fortunate to be part of five purchases, i.e. our companies were purchased, two by strategic acquirers and three by financial private equity firms. And I just look at some of the valuations of things we sold five to 10 years ago that you looked at these metrics of maybe six to 10x earnings, right? Or EBITDA, or maybe you were lucky and you got four to 5x revenues. But today we're looking at these multiples of 10, 20, 30x revenues. It's incredible, isn't it, Lowell? It's, it's unbelievable. And really since 2020, particularly for publicly traded companies, multiples have doubled. You know, the acceleration of digitization, there are a lot of, there's a lot of money out there. There are a lot of reasons why, but it's remarkable. Well, before we talk about all those fortunes to be made out there, let's start at the beginning because founding and growing your own business, especially your B2B SaaS or cloud business, it's very personal to most entrepreneurs. And there seem to be a few standard telltale signs that maybe it's the right time to consider selling your baby or exiting your baby. So 
Can you tell me a little bit about what are some of the signs that entrepreneurs should look for to say, maybe I should consider a sale of my company? Right. I have that conversation a lot with potential sellers. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's philosophical. There, there are personal elements to it. Sometimes a founder has been in it for five, seven. There's a common time frame, sometimes 10 or 12 years. And they're out of ideas and they're burned out and they may have been underpaying themselves and a lot of their personal capital is tied up in the company. So that's one issue on the, on the personal side. Someone's ready for a change, either some, some help or they may want to get out. But also, I think, you know, it depends on, on the competition. If, if you've got a good growing business, but you feel that the, the area has gotten hot, like HR tech, for example, has gotten pretty hot, like through COVID, which generally you think would be good, but you've seen companies like Microsoft, you know, companies like Pecan get acquired with massive billion dollar valuations. It's hard to compete with companies that have hundreds of millions of dollars in cash. So sometimes there's a consolidation occurring. It's a good time to get out. Additionally, you know, the, at the macro level, sometimes like you, we mentioned, multiples are double what they were two years ago. Will it continue? It might. Could they get higher? It might. Could they go down? It might. You know, so you've got to weigh the kind of the macro level things in there as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about like kind of valuation. There, there are also, I won't jump ahead, but you know, depending on the size of the company, you know, 100 million ARR companies get higher val, higher multiples than 10 million, then higher than 5 million. So sometimes 10 million in particular is a pretty serious metric. So if you're, if you exceed 10 million, you've crossed a threshold where I think it's worthwhile considering it. If you're at two to three, I think it's often worthwhile to at least try to get to five before you start to consider it. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned, right, kind of the catalyst for considering selling your company is you've stalled, right? The future looks a little bleaker than it did a year ago or three years ago. And so a lot of companies will engage uh, mergers and acquisition advisory firm. But if your future looks bleak or if you're not growing that fast, do you really recommend a founder seriously consider selling their company when they're just, they've hit a wall? Well, I look at it even from personal experience. I know as a, as a founder, uh, as a CEO for six years, I always had more ideas about how we could accelerate things, how we could bend the growth curve and get that hockey stick. And about five years in, I kind of hit a wall. I, I call it when you look in the mirror and you tell yourself, I'm out of ideas. Like, I don't, I don't know what else to do. And at that point, it's probably not going to change. And it's often a good time to get out because things can get worse. You, you may have a decent business. It may be flat or low growth, but that's better than declining. You know, there's the term out there. No one wants to catch a falling knife. So if you go in the, on the decline, it can be tough to sell the business to anyone for any amount. I've talked to a lot of founders on the Metrics of Major podcast, and that decision to sell the company comes with another decision, which is I probably won't be that involved if involved at all once the company is acquired, especially if it's a strategic acquire versus a financial acquire. So when you work with entrepreneurs, you kind of help them get to the point where they actually realize that this could be the end of an era for them and this company and this idea they created. It's a really good question. And I, I have a real heart-to-heart -heart conversation with, with founders. I'm very empathetic having been a founder. And I, I, I'm very clear with them that, that I work for you. And my goal is to position you where, where you want to end up. And a part of that is understanding where they want to end up. Because often we'll have, you know, we, we've got a deal this week where there, there are multiple offers and there are different roles that, that people will play in the different companies. So I think people early on think, this is my number. I, I want to get this much money. But structure, which we can talk about later, is important, often more than that. But also the position in the culture. Is it a culture that I'm excited about, that I think that 
I will want to go to work every day and, and feel alive and I can contribute and make a difference. That's one part of it. And I mean, compensation is a part of it and upside. And, and no one really knows. I coach people. You don't really know what it will be like when you get on the other side. You may think you don't like it right now, but you might be surprised. I've seen some people that, that didn't think they would stay more than 12 months max. And three years later, they're still there and they're, and they're relatively happy. I've seen others that are really excited about what it will be but they've never worked for someone before, right? This is the third company they founded. It's the first one that has an exit. And also they've got a boss at a Fortune 500 company that's a VP of something asking for reports. And they're just not as excited about it. So it, it really just depends. Part of what we try to do is, is be pretty transparent with the buyer and the seller and find the right role for the founder because they won't be the CEO most likely, right? They will have a title. They might be a general manager. They might be the chief product officer. They could be a, a VP of, of something, but it, it will be different. That's very good insight, Lowell. Well, this is the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. So let's talk about the metrics that are important to acquirers. And you mentioned something, and for our listening audience, if you're smaller, and I'll use less than 10 million, and definitely if you're less than 5 million, the metrics that companies, acquirers are going to look at are different. So let's start with companies that are $10 million and above. What are the primary metrics that acquirers will be looking at, Lowell? Yeah. Well, and 10 million is kind of a magic number because many of the private equity firms, which own strategic, so you've got these kind of quasi, you know, they've, they've got a, a limit of, of 10 million in companies that they can invest into their LP. So the other thing is you can become a platform at 10 million. So that's, that's important as well. You're not just an add-on to another existing business. The market's much wider. So you covered the size piece, greater than 10 million, you're, you're very desirable. The reason people love SaaS businesses, it really, it's as simple as it's growth and retention. The reason it's different and more valuable than licensed, traditional license-based software is it's an annuity stream that lasts over time. And really your retention metrics, both the logo churn and the net retention really talks about how reliable that revenue stream is over time. And part of the reason you see the multiples as high as they are for companies with good growth and retention is because they recognize the high future value of that revenue. Think of it another way. If a company has, if you've got 50% churn annually, you're effectively buying a two-year license on average, but they're not really buying a long-term SaaS license. So logo churn is a big deal. Net revenue retention is, I would say, as big or, or a bigger deal. I think people can be a little bit smarter about how they measure logo churn. Sometimes people are just kicking the tires. They're not truly a SaaS subscriber. Customer concentration is, is a big deal. If you've got 80% of your revenue with one client, unless that's a strategic client that someone wants to get into, that will be a concern to someone because you lose one contract. It's a much smaller company. The market size, so the total available market is a big deal. EBITDA, you know, a lot of companies will say profitability doesn't matter. It's all about growth. I would argue it's easier... And that is sometimes true. And some companies get sold for a lot of money that aren't profitable, but the vast majority of the deals being even break-even or somewhat profitable, it makes it easier to sell because ultimately many publicly traded companies are measured on, on multiples of EBITDA. The other thing I'll throw in there is the amount of capital raised. Companies that, that have bootstrapped are interesting to more companies than those that have raised a lot of VC. And that's kind of a general statement, but part of the reason I say that is they feel that the success that you've had, you've done on your own without a lot of resources applied. So they feel if they buy it and apply the resources, they can accelerate the growth even more. Yeah, so those were eight different metrics that you shared. So I'm going to see if we can prioritize even a little bit more, Low. So once again, we're talking about $10 million and above. Yep. And one of the things I do is always look at benchmarks, right? Because 
any investor is going to look at how you benchmark against the other opportunities they have to invest their capital. And I also look at correlations to a metric and enterprise value to revenue multiple history. Things like growth or committed ARR growth, I find over the last six months, it has an R squared factor or a correlation factor of about 0.32, but net dollar retention at 10 million above has an R squared or correlation factor of almost 0.5 now. So at the lower end of that, 10 million, 15, 20, do you think people should prioritize focusing on the growth before they engage with a strategic acquire? or net dollar retention if they had to prioritize one of those? Or is it a really false good. premise? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. I've actually asked that question of, of multiple buyers before, and they even have to scratch their head. So they're both important, but I believe the thing that gets the most attention is the net dollar retention. Ultimately, if you're able to increase growth to the clients that stay faster than those that lose, you've got an extremely powerful business. It's a powerful business model. Whereas if it's linear growth, but there's no growth within the existing client base, you know, like it's a $10,000 license period, then there's really no opportunity to grow. I think that's a less interesting business than one that grows organically. Yeah. We're going to go for a couple of hours just on this topic. And I want to cover a lot of other great insights that you have, Lowell. But one of the interesting things about net dollar or net revenue retention is it actually has some selection bias built into it. Because if you have a product-led growth or usage-based pricing model, your net revenue retention might be 120, 130% because your revenue goes up as usage goes up. However, if you have a subscription that's based upon seats, et cetera, you may have fully penetrated the sales organization of your sales tech and there's nowhere else to go. So one of the things I would recommend to our listener audience is understand your business model and how that impacts net revenue retention. Does that make sense, Lowell? It, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I believe because usage can fluctuate. If you can show that you can drive increased usage, I think that's valuable. But contractual subscription revenue to me is, is the most valuable. So if you show growth in that contractual subscription, I think it's, it's positive. What's interesting in the public markets, EBITDA, right? And I believe that you should try to grow a profitable company. But in the private market, there was no, the R squared factor of EBITDA to enterprise value to revenue multiples is zero. So profitability has very little impact in the public market on valuations today. Do you think that's cascading down to VC-backed private companies or even all private companies or not? Uh, you've probably got better data than I do, right? I see qualitatively, you know, we'll do three, four, five deals a year. I'll have probably a thousand buyer conversations. I just know that there are a number of strategic companies. If you're a part of a company that's burning quite a bit of cash, there are a number of strategics that like the product, they like the fit, but they've got covenants to the bank on their side and they just can't take on the cash burn. So in some ways, it's less about the profitability is, and it's a, it's a leap of faith that, so you're losing money today at scale. Will you just lose more money or will you make money? So they've got to make, make that leap. But having said that, so if it's burning a lot, I think it, there's an exception where the companies are still quite valuable. But generally speaking, being close to, like I say, break even or profit, you're not going to be valued on the profit. But at some point in the future at scale, the goal is to generate positive cash flow and profitability. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was, can you be a platform? And that's really, well, let me back up. 
there's two types of strategic buyers from my experience. There's the companies, the other B2B SaaS vendor cloud companies that want to roll you in so they can expand their platform reach. Then there's the private equity that are looking for the potential cash returns and maybe even how they can invest more to grow and hit that billion dollar and above. So my question, Lowell, is are the metrics that a strategic acquirer look at different if it's truly a strategic acquisition by another SaaS company versus a private equity company? Yeah. So as a platform, I, I do think it's different. I mean, part of what's different as a platform is other than bolting on other acquisitions onto your platform, driving organic growth around your business model is really the only way to accelerate revenue. Whereas a, a strategic, and you see it all the time, that's part of what drives these, these high multiples. If you're a company, let's say you've got 10 million in revenue, you're being bought at 10 million in revenue, you've got 500 clients and you're bought by a Fortune 500 company that has 50,000 clients. You can do some pretty simple math and say, well, at 10% adoption, we've got 5,000 clients, which is 10 times, that's 100 million in revenue. So it's just easier for them to rationalize nonlinear growth at scale. So it's easier to build a business case, whereas a $10 million to $100 million company as the platform, it's a lot of hard work, right? It's a lot of organic growth. It's a lot of bolt-ons. It's, it's a fair amount of capital invested. It's hiring a lot of salespeople. It's a lot of leads. You know, it's a lot of conversion. So it is a little bit different. Yes. Let's double click on the private equity acquisition because I see two basic types of private equity acquisitions. One is they identify a company which could be the platform to actually go out and acquire additional companies and layer on top of both your technology and your organization. And Vista was really famous at that, right? Yeah. For, for many, many years. Then you have the other private equity firms that actually look at you and say, ah, I'm going to acquire your technology, put it into another portfolio company's platform. And that means a lot of your people will probably be let go, especially SG&A people. So is that the way you see the world or is that a maybe not the correct lens I have on it, Lowell? No, I, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, um, brief history lesson. I go back at Enron, did some bad things. Sarbanes-Oxley was put in place to try to correct those things. It added uh, you know, a one to $2 million a year in cost to go public in swoops private equity right around 2002 and basically takes over the lower end of the, the publicly traded market and have gotten you know, 40% internal rates of return. You know, it's what, $4.7 trillion in private equity today. So yeah, they have a thesis, they'll have a strategy, and then they'll search for a platform to build that strategy around. And almost always they're acquisitive. So they'll, they'll put the platform in place and then they'll immediately look to add on in the next two to three years, you know, three to five to 10 add-ons, bolt-ons. It might be geographic expansion. It might be to fill a product hole. It might be complementary products that can be sold to the same company. But yeah, they babysit a pool of money and their goal is to provide a return to their investors, you know, in a certain time frame. So they want to put it to work. Can we double click even more on what platform means? Because a lot of people think that's their technology or maybe that's their company's the platform. Yeah. So number one, what is a platform? And then number two, if you think you can be that platform for a roll up in your industry and you want private equity partnership to do that roll up. Are there specific attributes you should make sure that exist within your company to be a candidate as the platform basis to do roll-ups? 
Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Because I know in tech, the platform is usually the technology. But in this case, for private equity, for the, the finance people, it's it's literally the company. It's effectively a strategic. That's where they private equity starts to look like strategics because they own a lot of strategic companies that are doing add-ons. The single most consistent thing that I see for SaaS platforms is that minimum of 10 million in ARR. Some are bending seven, eight, nine, because it's just so competitive right now. It's, it's, I talked to a private equity yesterday and he said, well, I said, it's just really hard to deploy capital right now. There's so much competition for deals that they are starting to branch down below. But a lot of it really comes down to FIP. We work with about 300 different private equity firms and their strategy and their thesis tend to change based on the, the market dynamics, right? The COVID, obviously logistics is a big deal with COVID, things being digitalized. So aligning with the right strategy is honestly the, the, the most important thing. Being over a size that's acceptable to be a platform is important. And then you get into some of the other fundamentals behind that. You know, Do they believe it's a good business? And then how much will they value it based on the fundamentals that we talked about earlier? Yeah. And I found some of the bigger private equity companies, they're like, is this a company that can be the platform to get to a billion dollars of revenue? Yeah. And if they don't see that, they're not even interested. Is that still a certain cohort of private equity groups that saying your target addressable market better get us to a billion or above in the next five to 10 years? I used to think that, and I, I can't say that that's not true. I feel like that's more of a, a VC because they're gambling. You know, they're gamblers. They're going to make 30 bets and they know 20 will fail, failed return capital, and they just need three or four to be a billion dollars. Private equity, I think, is a little bit safer. I don't want to say smarter. It's just a little bit safer. They're later in the, you know, the company has proven product market fit, you know, re recurring customers. And so their returns, they don't have the stratospheric returns, but they're really focused on IRR is the short answer. So they've typically got 20 to 25% internal rate of return hurdles. So they'll build a business model. They'll look at your company and they'll bake it into a business model and, you know, call it, you know, it's typically a five-year cycle. And they'll look at if, you know, if we pay, if your company's 10 million, if we pay hundred million for this and we can generate, you know, 25% organic growth and we can bolt on these companies for another 10 million. So, so it's less about the billion. It's more about however much they deploy getting a 25% or greater internal rate of return from start to finish. Yeah. Interesting. Well, did you say 300 different PE firms that you work with? Is that correct? Yeah, we work pretty closely with the known SaaS buyers. And they're from the value side all the way up to the 20X buyers. So I want to confirm something that I've been hearing as I've talked to both VCs and PE firms. And that is, Ray, we don't trust the metrics that we're giving in the early stage of due diligence. If someone says they have a net dollar retention rate of 120% or a CAC payback period of 14 months, we're going to want to get into the source data right? And anonymize yeah. it at a yeah. company by company level and do our yeah. own calculations. Number one, do you see that most of the time? And number two, what can I do as a CEO or CFO to make sure that my metrics basically measure up to the expectations when they do their own calculations? Yeah, no, you're exactly you're the first person that's asked that, but that's exactly right. And they will do that every time. And I, I'll coach founders early on, you know, your financials need to be correct. Ideally, they're accrual financing, but often they're cash-based. That's fairly normal, but you need to, to get that in order. Yeah. You need to know what your metrics are. Well, what you need to have your anonymized data, and then you need to make sure that it's clean because sometimes the anonymized data, there, I have a lot of different like thread stories. You just want to make sure that your data is consistent. For example, 
Sometimes salespeople are motivated to rebook a contract under a slightly different name. It was Rockwell, now it's Rockwell Inc. Well, it looks like a, a logo churn, but in fact, it's the same client. So you want to you need to go through and make sure that the data is accurate. But almost always, especially financial buyers, will want to look at the data and they'll run their own model. They will not trust your numbers. And it's nothing personal. They know that you may be good at growing the company, building a company and growing it, but you're not experts. And they, they'll evaluate hundreds of companies every year and they want to do it exactly the same. And they can only do that with the source data. Interesting. You know, sometimes I found in my career, I learned the most through my mistakes. So do you have any horror stories of a firm you were working with? And once they got into the financials, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe this mistake that the firm we're trying to buy was. Anything you can share? Yeah. One of the things that's relatively common is if a company, if you've not raised money, so if you're bootstrapped and based on cash flow, or if you funded it yourself, you've not had a board. So you've not had to present your financials to an outside party, often for you know, 5, 10, 15 years. And as long as on a cash basis, the company makes money and you do your taxes, that's fine. But sometimes when you really look at the bookkeeping, you know that part-time bookkeeper you had really didn't didn't get all of your expenses into QuickBooks, you know, or really all of the contracts weren't really properly reflected in there. And that can be bad because at some point they're going to do a quality of earnings and, and they'll start to poke through and they'll find the holes that are in there. And that, that can be embarrassing. You just mentioned something. I never asked this question before, so I'm going to ask it now. An audit, an annual audit. At what stage do you recommend a B2B SaaS or cloud company consider doing external audits of their financials if they think a strategic partner over time is a path for them? Yeah, I think if you have a good third-party accounting firm and you're running a proper accrual financing, which, which gets complicated, I'm not sure that you actually need an audit, but if, if they've done a good job, you're probably going to be 99% correct. If you haven't, you know, if you've had you know, someone that does it part-time that doesn't really do accounting, do it, which is you know fine for what you've done. Then doing a, a Q of E, you probably don't need to do a full audit, but you could do a Q of E. It's, you know, it's going to cost 25 grand, but that will expose and clean everything up and eliminate that as a possibility for things going south when you get far down the road, which is important. You're going to invest a lot of time and money and energy going down a path with someone. You want to eliminate surprises earlier than later. Pivot um, once again, and there's this whole trend of online marketplaces to list your B2B SaaS or cloud company and potential acquirers come in and they start the courting process on these online marketplaces versus a traditional model of having an M&A advisory firm kind of help you get all your books and presentation and value proposition in order and goes out and knows some of the strategic acquirers and or can go out and try to source potential parties of interest. What do you think? Is this digital marketplace for acquisitions going to be a evolving and growing trend over time, Low? I think there's a place for it. You know, biz by sell is uh, does a nice job for, for certain small businesses that just don't have the resources to hire, you know, a professional to go out and market it for them. You know, but, you know, think about selling your product in a marketplace versus hiring a sales team to go out and properly position it and sell it. It's very different. There's a lot of money at stake, often life-changing amounts of money. It's very complicated. I mean, you want a good securities attorney and I think a good M&A advisor, both personally and professionally. There are a lot of basics like uh, you've got a million bucks in cash on the balance sheet. I know as a buyer, when I buy companies, if they didn't have representation, I would say, well, we want the cash. It goes with the business. 
and we would usually get it. If they had an eminent advisor, he would say, you don't get the cash. This is a cash-free, debt-free deal. So this is meaningful amounts of money. So, you know, will you save two, three, four percent in fees to a banker? You will, but you also may get, you know, 20, 30, 50% less for your company. And there's the structure piece of it. And there's just a lot of things, you know, if you've got a high integrity buyer, you know, it may not be that much different, but ultimately the first company I was a part of when they went out, initially offers were 40 million. Uh, eventually sold for 110 million. And that's because someone was shopping it and creating a competitive situation and getting the best possible deal. In a marketplace, that's probably not going to happen. You might get enough and you might be happy, right? But you will almost, I can't imagine you wouldn't get more, often significantly more, um, if you can hire someone. But again, I understand there, there are certain businesses that you can't afford to do that. It's just not an option to go out and do that. And I think for those companies, I think that's a good place. I will say, this is probably a longer answer, but, but it's a remarkably opaque marketplace. And, and I do struggle with that. I mean, part of what I try to do is I know the people. And so I can, I can, I can kind of close the loop. But it is interesting that there's not a more transparent way for buyers and sellers to find each other. But again, as a seller, you want competition. You want people fighting over at the same time, both the strategics and the financials. Um, and you want exposure to companies that you might not even think would buy you because they're not in your industry. But guess what? They sell a product to your same client base and they've got 50,000 clients. And guess what? Their salespeople can take what you have and sell it in that same, same customer base, even though it's a completely different product. Yeah, to me, size matters too. I see the marketplaces. If you've got a 500K or yeah. million, maybe even two, maybe it's an interesting place to dabble. But if you've got yep. a meaningful revenue size, 5 million and above, to me, the marketplaces, marketplaces don't seem to make a lot of sense. Would you agree with that size demarcation as one? Absolutely. I think you see a lot of small businesses that get sold there. And I think there's a place for it. You also need to be careful. It's like anything that's an open marketplace. There are characters, there are actors not acting in good faith that are out there. They're not legitimate buyers. There are people out there that have other ambitions that, that want to sell you something or want access to things. So you need to be careful who you interact with. I've, I've worked with those marketplaces before and I've found some interesting potential buyers, but I've also found a large number of people that are there for other reasons than to legitimately buy the company. Got you. Okay, here's a hot topic, valuations. We touched upon it earlier, but you know, if you look at the public markets today, you see 30X, 40X multiples on enterprise value to 12-month forward-looking revenues. It's just unheard of. But then- if you start looking at the multiples by cohort, you find that there's some real selection bias going on because the top guys are getting 40, 50X. But if you're in the median of growth, you might be getting 15, 20X. And if you're at the lowest quartile, you're getting you know, 6, 8, 10X. Do you see similar trends going on in the private acquisition multiple space? That there's real, the standard deviations between the high and low are incredible, incredible. Yeah, it, it ranges. In fact, I, I did some quick research before coming on the show. And I saw like the public valuations, you, you know, like Snowflake, right? Like the 100x valuation. But then you see in the low, like on the bottom end, you've got companies that are in the, the three to four x on the public side. Private, I do see uh, similar things. I would say that, you know, five years ago, there was about a 30% difference between public valuations and private. It's almost two to one today. So the public valuations have doubled in the last two years. Private has gone up, but not quite as fast. And the range I tell people that that, that we tend to see, there, there are some high flyers, and, and but you know if you're over 100 million, growing at 100%, you're going to get a very high valuation. 
But we see in the one to 20 X is what we see on the private side. There's, there's a huge range in there. One to 20 X. And if you had to pick the median, would you say it's in the eight to 10 or? I would say the median is in the, it depends on, I mean, it's a long median. So I'd say, I'd say four to eight is probably the, if I had to pick a median. So if I had to pick a median, I'd say, if I had to pick a middle number, I'd say it's probably six, six or seven, but good growth retention, you know, it's double digit. And again, if you've got high amount of services, flat growth, small market, you know, it's in the one or two X. Well, at least we're setting some expectations through a strategic acquisition process. Don't be thinking the 20, 30, 40 X or you're not interested. Let's be a little bit more realistic. Do you find that strategic acquisition multiples are different than a more traditional VC investment multiple? I would say, yes, if you've got PE, VC, and strategic, I think VC valuations are high. But and one thing I try to coach entrepreneurs, VCs aren't buying your company. They're, you're really just pricing the stock that they buy, which is very, very different. When someone buys your company, they're going to own it, right? And they're either going to resell it and they need to resell it for more. So they want to pay less for it. Or they're going to, in a strategic, they're going to roll it out across their organization and try to scale it pretty quickly. VCs making a you know five plus year that it will be worth more over time. So VCs are paying higher multiples than I see on the on the exit side for private companies. We didn't talk about this as a discussion point, Lowell, but it just popped into my mind. And that is the currency for the acquisition, cash versus the acquirer stock, if it's a strategic acquirer. Do you have any kind of framework or rules of thumb of how to evaluate cash versus stock? It's a really good question. Cash is king. Cash is cash. You can go buy whatever you want with it, right? You know, if it's publicly traded stock, you'd say that's almost like cash. Maybe there's a lockup for a while, but that's probably the next best thing. Private stock, you've got two things at play. One is, do you believe the how they value it today, right? If they're going to give you, you know, 20 million in company stock and they say the company is worth 200 million, but we think it's worth 50 million, that's a problem. And then what are the prospects? You need to do a lot of reverse due diligence. They'll do a lot of diligence on you, but you're effectively investing in that company. You're making a $20 million bet on that company. You better be sure that, that they're primed for success, that, that you believe that there will be an exit and an exit that's attractive to you. And you want to understand you know, what, what class of stock are you getting? You know, are there preferences? Where are you in the stack? It's definitely more complicated and there's, there's more risk. Having said that, I will say most, not all, most of the people I know that are acquired by private equity and are offered the opportunity to roll over money for second bite at the apple, more often than not, make more money on the second bite than they do in the first bite. And the other thing I coach people is if you're gonna have a life-changing event, if you're gonna you know, pick a number, you're gonna make 10 million bucks, 20 million bucks, what are you gonna do with that cash? You're gonna to have to invest it somewhere. So in some cases, if you believe in your company and the company that bought you, why not invest 20% of it? And often you can avoid paying tax on it if it's structured correctly when you roll it over. Why not invest it in that other company? Because what else are you going to do with it? You're going to throw out in the stock market at 36000 That might be a good thing to do. Might not. I don't know. But it's, it's a good idea to diversify. It can be a good idea to diversify. Very personal decision. That brought another topic to mind, and we're going to go over our normal 30 minutes because I think this is so intriguing, and that is the concept of earnout. So can you explain what an earnout is 
And do you still see that as a pretty common element in a lot of private company acquisitions? Yeah, that's a really good question. What I would say is sometimes there's a disconnect in the value of the company. For example, a strategic, they say, we value your company at 50 million. And the seller says, well, I think it's worth, I think it's worth a hundred because you're going to, I'll use the example I used before. You're going to roll it out to your 50,000 clients. It's going to be worth 10 times as much. That's a case where they may say, all right, well, we'll pay, we'll pay you 50 million cash at close but then the earnout is tied to hitting those targets. So it's kind of a compromise. It's like, because I'll tell the buyers that I know you, you don't want to pay a hundred, but if you, if you truly turn that $10 million business into a hundred million, you would have gladly paid that. Right. And they'll say, Oh yes. So there's some risk in there. So let's look at a shared risk model. That's not a bad way to go. I think it needs to be tied purely to revenue, revenue targets. It can't be to profitability because you could run a marketing campaign, kill you. That gets too complicated. Things will go bad. All things being equal, I, I don't like earnouts. I think they're ripe for problems and discontent on the other side. So I think if you can find a, a fair valuation that lines up and structure it in a way that avoids an earnout, I think that's the best way to go. But if the seller is willing, is really looking for an aggressive multiple, like over and above what other offers were, and they look at the earnout as almost a bonus that aligns incentive, that's not a bad way to go. But the problem is you lose control, right? When you're on the other side, you, you're you no longer the CEO and they may or may not put the effort you think they should into accelerating the efforts. What percentage of transactions would you say ha have an earnout clause? The deals that we do, it's, I'd say less than 20%. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's, it's very few, yeah. Okay. And then something associated, um, you're the founder, you're getting acquired by a large strategic, not a private equity firm. And it's like, I really don't think I want to do there. I got another idea. I want to launch a new company. Kind of that period that you have to commit to the company requires you. Do you negotiate that up front that it's like only a year or you try to eliminate that? Do you have any advice on that, Lowell? Yeah, I'm a believer in, in being transparent. I mean, and if someone says, hey, I'm burned out, I need to get out. It's like, well, could you do a year? Could you do six months of the transition? And then I'll, you know, I'll tell the, the buyer that, you know, that they'd, they'd prefer um, you know, to move on to something else, willing to do. Most buyers are okay with whatever the seller wants to do. It depends on the business. Some of the smaller businesses, the CEO is still like the command center. Like they, they do too much, right? And so they worry, they have all the customer relationships. So they, they might worry a little bit, but usually the bigger the business is, the less, less important the, the founder really is. And most buyers understand that, that people may or may not I mean, I will tell you that whether the founder wants to stay or not, usually, usually isn't the deciding factor on the buyer side, whether or not they buy the company or not. They'll usually adapt to, if they want to stay, they'll find a role. And if they want to leave, they'll, they'll find a way to plug it in. Well, what didn't I ask that you think for our listening audience to be really important as they go through the evaluation, should I sell my company or not? Well, I think, and I'm not just saying this to be nice. I, I don't do that, but I think they should they should listen to a lot of people that come on your show. The metrics matter. And I think people spend five or 10 or 12 years killing themselves to build a business, to be successful. And then they go to sell it. I think sometimes without giving proper thought into simple things that they could do to clean up and bump their metrics. You know, things like people that are kicking the tires, don't count them and they didn't truly commit long-term. You look at the large publicly traded SaaS companies, they know how to legally and fairly and transparently work the metrics so that things aren't hitting the logo churn that, that shouldn't. Often companies have never done a price increase, right? Why not, why not roll out a five or 6% price increase six to 12 months before you sell? 
it'll bump your net your NRR by by five or six percent, right? That could get you from a, a six to a seven on an exit. So there, there are a number of things. The analogy would be if you sell your house, your house should look great when you sell it. Put a fresh coat of paint on it, right? I mean, get someone to landscape it, put a little bit of time and effort into it, then you might get 10 or 20% more for the business. It's amazing how often people don't do that. So, so you should, I mean, and call us, we're happy to chat. I mean, we're happy to give free advice on what you should do if you're going to sell in a year or two. Interesting you say that, Lowell, because a lot of our clients, they engage with us two to four quarters before they're thinking about any type of financing event, whether that's VC or private equity or strategic, to have us evaluate what their key performance indicator metrics are, yeah. how they've instrumented them, how they're doing the calculations. Is it per industry standard? And then they have two to four quarters before they even go out and talk to bankers, et cetera, that they know that their metrics not only are being calculated correctly, but how they benchmark against their like company cohort group. Because then they go in fully informed to say, hey, I know I'm in the top 25 percentile or I'm in the bottom 25 percentile. Does that also make sense? Really think about it, how you map up. It makes a lot of sense because at some point, you know, we'll do the initial conversation at some point you know, the, the founder is going to be talking to the potential buyers and the extent that they're, they're well-versed in these metrics and these numbers, and they'll spend some time in it, will give credibility to the, the buyer, give them confidence in that they know how they're, that the business has been well-run. Perfect. Well, let's get the listening audience a chance to get to know Lowell a little bit better on a personal basis through three quick questions. First, which CEO or company do you think is a must-follow for any CEO today? Well, this is a little bit biased. I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. I know he's a little bit controversial, but I think his what he has done to, to transform industries that I don't think anyone else could do is just absolutely remarkable. I, I'm also tend to be fairly practical. I think for anyone in any, you know, if you're in a vertical, I think people should track the leaders, the shakers, the movers in your industry. I mean, that's maybe a little bit of a simple answer, but I think it's important to track the, the people in your space, because that's going to affect you and your business the most. Yeah, no, you know, Elon Musk, I bet 25 to 35% of my guests actually say Elon Musk. So he is definitely <laughs> doing something right there. And by the way, the, the founders at Rivian should be very happy because they're, what I think they're at 84 billion today is because uh -huh. of Elon Musk. Unbelievable. Okay. Second question, which tool should every SaaS company be using? I have a love hate with HubSpot. I love it. I think it gets expensive quickly, but I think it, makes you more efficient and scaling revenue is everything in a business. So I'm a big fan of that. I'd also throw out outreach.io, a little bit younger company, but they will make you better at, at selling and scaling. All right. I like the fact that you highlighted outreach.io because Manny is one of the few CEOs and founders I haven't got on my show yet. So Manny, if you're hearing that, we're giving you some press here with outreach.io. Okay. Number three, what advice would you give a recent college graduate or a very early career professional who wants to be the next great B2B SaaS or cloud founder? The thing I see most often, and I, I, I interact with like a lot of different startup people, is I see people that have, uh, they see a problem, they come up with a solution, they build a product, and they believe when they, when they solve this problem, the business will just take off. And I think what they really underestimate is how difficult it is to generate awareness and interest and engagement to drive revenue. And revenue is everything. Product is great. I hear entrepreneurs talk about product all day long till they're blue in the face because they're excited about it. That's their baby. But at the end of the day, revenue is what people care about. 
And customers only care about their problems and the problem that it solves. They really don't care about your product other than how it solves their problems. So talk about the messaging, talk about, talk about the customer's problems, not you, your company, your product. You know, I always say in five words or less, tell me what your company does. It's hard to get it down to five words, but if you can do it right, usually that uncovers the fundamental reason why people really care about your product. It somehow makes their life, their company better. Interesting. So learn the revenue side of the equation before you launch your company. I love that, Lowell. Hey, thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Thanks, Ray. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guests and content that we provide, it would mean the world to us. If you could subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and go ahead and give us that five-star rating and even your recommendations on how we can make this show and our guests even better for you. Thank you everyone for listening. And once again, Lowell, thank you for being our guest. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.